Good evening. Today, the death of a labor icon. And we talk about COVID and the need to vaccinate young people as being promoted by the federal government, the fight between Governor DeSantis and the Biden administration over lockdowns and vaccinations in his state, the loss to Chantel Brown. What does that say about Democratic Party politics and whose streets our streets voting rallies in Washington with these and other stories? I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, August 5th, 2021. Richard Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO, whose, ro- whose rise from the coal mines of Pennsylvania to, preside- to presiding over one of the largest labor organizations in the world, died today. He was 72. Trumka had been AFL-CIO president since 2009 after serving as the organization's secretary treasurer for 14 years. He oversaw a federation with more than 12.5 million members. President Joe Biden eulogized Trumka from the White House and said the labor union, pardon me, the labor leader had died of a heart attack while on a camping trip with his son and grandkids. He wasn't just a great labor leader. He was a friend. He was an American worker, always fighting for working people, protecting their wages, their safety, their pensions and their ability to build a middle class life. I used to always kid him. He was from soft coal country. I was from hard coal country. <laughs> we used to have this thing about, you know, he used to be president of the United Mine Workers. And that's how he got started. President Biden, born in 1949 in, the small south, in a small southwestern Pennsylvania town, Trumka worked for seven years in the mines before earning a law degree. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer made the announcement on the Senate floor earlier today. I rise today with some sad, some horrible news about the passing of a great friend, Rich Trumpka, who left us this morning. The working people of America have lost a fierce warrior at a time when we needed him most. Just yesterday, Rich was lending his support to the striking miners in Alabama. Following in his father's footsteps, he worked in the mines. He went to Penn State, earned his law degree, didn't practice, didn't go to some fancy place, went right to work for the United Mine Workers, which he led for so many years. And then he became head, first secretary, treasurer, and AFL-CIO. He had in his veins, in every atom of his body, the heart, the thoughts, the needs of the working people of America. He was them. Rich Trumka was the working people of America. He never had any heirs. It's just horrible news. We have just lost a giant, and we need him so. We will remember him forever, and his memory will, I know, importune all of us to do more even more for the working people of America who Rich Trumka so dearly and deeply loved. Yield the floor. And that is, of course, 
Chuck Schumer earlier today. Trumka met with President Donald Trump on trade and health care issues, but their relationship remained contentious. At times, Trumka challenged blue-collar workers to confront their own prejudices, including a forceful denunciation of racism in the union ranks during Barack Obama's first winning campaign for the White House. And in COVID news, the Biden administration today announced efforts to boost COVID vaccinations in children ages 12 and up, as well as young adults as they return to school this fall. The plan comes ahead of more than 50 million students returning to K-12 school and 20 million returning to college within the next six weeks. As of last week, only 30 percent of 12 to 17 year olds were fully vaccinated. White House COVID advisor Jeff Seentz. The United States will maintain the existing travel restrictions at this point. However, we do have, uh, as you alluded to, agency working groups that are developing plans for when we do open travel, how do we do it in a consistent and safe way? And part of that planning is a phased approach that foreign nationals traveling to the United States may, um, there's, there's still policy work being done here, may need to have some type of a vaccine uh, requirement. But that's that's not a decision at this point. That's one of the more transmissible Delta variant. Cases are continuing to rise, trading in communities with low vaccination rates. In fact, over the past seven days, Florida and Texas have accounted for about one-third of new cases and more than one-third of new hospitalizations nationwide. In seven states alone, Florida... Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, states with some of the lowest vaccination rates account for about half of new cases and hospitalizations in the past week, despite making up less than a quarter of the U.S. population. America's businesses, large and small, universities and medical schools, and many other institutions are stepping up on vaccination requirements. And our message is quite simple. We support these vaccination requirements to protect workers, communities, and the country. And that's Jeff Seentz, White House COVID advisor. The extraordinary United States travel restrictions were first imposed on China in January 2020 to address the spread of COVID-19. Numerous other countries, the White House has held discussions with airlines and others about how it would implement a policy of requiring vaccines for foreign visitors. The administration must also consider what proof it would accept the vaccination and whether the United States would accept vaccines that some countries are using, but which is yet to be authorized by U.S. regulators. The United States currently bars most non-U.S. citizens who within the last 14 days have been in the United Kingdom. The 26 Shenzhen countries in Europe without border controls, including Ireland, China, India, South Africa, Iran and Brazil. And coronavirus hospitalizations are surging again across the United States as the forcing medical centers to return to a crisis footing. Florida hospitals are jammed with COVID-19 patients, so they're suspending elective surgeries and putting beds in conference rooms, an auditorium, and a cafeteria. As of midweek, Mississippi had just six open intensive care beds in the entire state. In Georgia, medical centers are turning people away, and in Louisiana, an organ transplant had to be postponed along with other procedures. But the emergency 
he has just added fuel to the partisan divide. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has taken a hard line against mask rules and other compulsory measures, saying it's important to keep Florida's economy moving. He responded angrily to President Biden, who's called out Florida and Texas for their low vaccine and high COVID-19 rates. What is he so upset about Florida? His solution is he wants to have the government force kindergartners to wear masks in school. Joe Biden also believes that vaccination should be mandated by force of government and that you should have to show vaccination status to be able to participate in society. I think the question is, is we can either have a free society or we can have a biomedical security state. I don't want to hear a blip about COVID from you. That's uh, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. A White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said today that DeSantis is harming people in Florida. From day one, uh, we've approached this not as a political issue, but a public health issue. We remain in touch with officials in Florida, just like we're in touch with officials from around the country, about how we can provide assistance from the federal level to help address this public health crisis. It is factual, and it is a fact, and data that you all are aware of, that 25% of hospitalizations in the country are in Florida. It is also a fact that the governor has taken steps that are counter counter to public health recommendations. Frankly, our view is that this is too serious, deadly serious, to be doing partisan name calling. We're focused on providing public health data, information to the people of Florida to make sure they understand what steps they should be taking, even if those are not steps taken at the top of the leadership in that state. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, across Florida, more than 12,500 patients were hospitalized with COVID-19 as of today, over 25 of them in intensive care, 2,500 of them in intensive care. The state is averaging nearly 18,000 newly confirmed infections per day, up from fewer than 2,000 a month ago. In all, Florida has recorded more than 39,100 coronavirus deaths. And in political news, Chantel Brown stormed back from a double-digit deficit to defeat progressive candidate Nina Turner on Tuesday in the Democratic primary for an open congressional seat in Ohio. Centrist presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden both soundly beat Senator Bernie Sanders in the same district, so it wasn't a surprise. The Cleveland seat was vacated when the incumbent, Marsha Fudge, resigned to join the Biden administration as housing secretary. Brown's win was especially celebrated by Israel supporters, who poured huge amounts of cash into the campaign to defeat Turner. In her victory speech, Brown credited her trip to Israel in 2018 and her support for the Jewish state. The race turned increasingly combative in July, pitting the centrist and anti-Palestinian Brown against Turner, a supporter of the progressive squad, who has expressed views for more open that are far more open to Palestinian rights. Brown was strongly supported by a PAC associated with the lobby group Democratic Majority for Israel. Journalist Michael Brown has an article on the website Electronic Intifada. He says when Chantel Brown talks about the dangers facing Israel from Palestinians, 
she's getting the issue backwards. She basically was inverting the reality um, that takes place and ignoring the fact that there's Israeli military superiority over the Palestinians. And so she had her facts backwards, largely in part because uh, she hasn't seen the Palestinian reality in Gaza. She's only been exposed to, to one side of the conflict. As for the, the reasons for the election, I think um, the involvement of Democratic majority for Israel, its PAC, that was one reason why um, Nina Turner lost. It was a significant reason, but it, it wasn't the only one. But it's it's because we focus on Israel-Palestine that that's the aspect that I looked at, that um, there was, according to National Public Radio, some $2 million that supported uh, as they put it, supported Brown or opposed Turner that came in from Democratic Majority for Israel's PAC. Uh, and it, it really swung an election that had been largely in favor of Turner. She, I read that she'd been up 35 points and took, took her to losing by seven. 4,000 votes was the latest that I saw, about 37,000 votes to 33,000. And that's, that's another issue, in fact, that you had this, primary election at the beginning of August when most voters are, are not used to, to turning out. It's a special election to replace Marsha Fudge, who's now the uh, the housing secretary for, for Biden. And so the general election will be in November. And then, assuming that Brown wins that, which I'm quite certain she will, she'd be up again for election in the midterms in 2022. What is it about America's an almost obsession with Israel that whatever the Israelis say or do must be right? Most politicians and most journalists go to Jerusalem. They go to Israel. They don't go and see what's happening with settlements inside the West Bank. They certainly don't go to the Gaza Strip and definitely not in the middle of an Israeli assault. And so they don't see the immense damage that American weaponry that Israel is using to the tune of $3.8 billion in military aid every year, they don't see the damage. And they're not aware of the BDS campaign, or they've had it misrepresented to them in a very unfortunate ways that rather than stress that it's a campaign for equal rights, for the end of the occupation and for the right of return of refugees, it's put to the American public that it's bigoted against the Jewish community when, in fact, it's a campaign for equal rights. A lot of people are talking about Brown's victory as uh, the New York Times and all the other media, pretty much the Democratic centrist media, is saying that this shows that the reign of AOC and Ilan Omar and Ayanna Presley, et cetera, et cetera, is over in the Democratic Party. That analysis is nonsense. I mean, Cori Bush lost two years ago and then one most recently in her race, it can certainly be done. I also think that we're looking at a district in Ohio that went by double digits to Hillary Clinton in 2016 against Bernie Sanders and by double digits again to Biden in 2020. It is a Democratic district, but it has a history of voting for the more centrist presidential candidate. We can look at the importance of enormous campaign contributions and the fact that Turner's were, were smaller cam campaign donations. And there was this late pile-in of money, particularly from corporate interests and from the Democratic majority for Israel, which gave some $2 million. Very late in the game, helped to swing those numbers. 
There's also been reporting on the enormous amount of money that Democratic Majority for Israel's PAC has been receiving from Republican supporters that it's going into DMFI PAC, and that's upsetting to people as well. I don't think we can draw broader lessons, though, from this. I think that each district is going to have its own unique circumstances um, that will affect things in 2022. Journalist Michael Brown has an article on the Chantel Brown win over Nina Turner on the website Electronic Intifada. Chantel Brown has said she also opposes the global BDS or boycott divestment sanctions movement targeting some businesses run by illegal West Bank Jewish settlers falsely accusing BDS of anti-Semitism. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Hundreds marched from the National African American Museum to the White House to protest against voter suppression laws in Washington, D.C. yesterday. They say the Senate is blocking passage of the For the People Act, a bill that's supposed to prevent Republican-controlled states from passing voter suppression laws. Among the protesters was longtime civil rights activist Reverend Jesse Jackson, who marched with activists of the Black Votes Matter movement and recited a new version of the poem, I Am Somebody. Yes, I am. I am somebody. Somebody. Look at me. I am. I am somebody. Somebody. Respect me. Respect me. Protect me. Protect me. Protect me. Protect me. I am. I am God's child. God's child. Stop the violence. Stop the violence. Save the children. Save the violence. Stop the violence. Save the children. I will vote. I can vote. I must vote. Reverend Jesse Jackson, Tennessee State Representative London Lamar, spoke about what she sees as hypocrisy among elected officials. We do this march from here by the White House to the front of the White House. We're telling President Biden to pick a side. And we're also telling him that in addition to the filibuster having to end, that he needs to tell the Senate that recess can wait. They can't take a vacation while we ain't got no voting rights. They can't go home to their districts while we don't have our voting rights. I'm sick and tired of seeing white supremacists who can storm the Capitol on January 6th and treat it with kid gloves. But the Black Lives Matter movement, who was peacefully protesting after the brutal death of George Floyd, we saw how they were treated. We know that racism is alive and well in this country. And this myth of voter uh, fraud is a big lie from former President Donald Trump. And the reason why they're perpetuating this lie is because they want to have an excuse, a reason to pass voter suppression laws. We got Democratic senators who claim to honor John Lewis, but can't even vote on legislation that embodies his work. What's the point of putting allies in office if you can't stand for the values that we push? Senator Manchin, Senator Seminole, I'm calling you out. Do the right thing. What's the point of you being a Democrat? You can't pass simple voting rights legislation. Do your job. Chuck Schumer, do your job. President Biden, take a side. President Biden, take a side. 
And, of course, several others spoke in that clip as well. Meanwhile, a group of landlords and real estate companies issued a legal challenge on Wednesday night in a D.C. district court to the Biden administration's new national eviction moratorium. The Alabama and Georgia Associations of Realtors Emergency Motion argues that Tuesday's order by the CDC, barring evictions for most of the U.S. until October, is overreach. In New York, the group Open Secrets reports over the past year and a half, the real estate industry has spent over $100 million on lobbying New York statewide eviction moratorium. The National Association of Realtors spent $84 million on lobbying in 2020, more than it has in any one year. Activist Reverend Frank Morales is with the Lower East Side Eviction Defense Network. He's working with a group that's planning a protest on next Wednesday, August 11th, to bring attention to the the New York eviction moratorium, which is set to uh, expire at the end of August, separate from the CDC moratorium. He spoke with WBAI earlier today. In terms of defending and protecting tenants, it's for the debts to be canceled, rent to be canceled, these debts to be canceled. And short of that, our movement has to organize efficiently on the street in order to prevent these evictions through civil disobedience and blockades and so on to create more discussion on the part of the banks, the big real estate, and all the sources of funding that are out there to bail out tenants. We need to create more safeguards to prevent evictions in the future, particularly of vulnerable populations and immigrants and people on fixed income, senior citizens and disabled and so on. The same people who are responsible for 2008 meltdown by playing against the mortgage market then are buying up moderate income housing and raising the rents precipitously across the United States. Yeah, that's taking place as we speak. The only way in which tenants are going to be able to protect themselves is to band together, organize where we live on the streets, pressure for alternative uh, forms of housing, housing that doesn't emphasize profit making over the right of people for a home. It's a pretty desperate situation, but it's the kind of crisis that creates opportunities for our movement to put forth alternative visions and solutions to the housing question. Clearly, we're going to have to organize on the streets, civil disobedience and nonviolent forms of resistance stop our folks from being evicted. That's the bottom line. Hopefully the movement gains strength throughout this crisis so that we can effectively create new alternatives, whether it be socialistic or communalistic or whatever you want to call it, housing that meets the needs of people rather than the profiteers. When it came time to bail out the banks, <laughs> you know, back in 2008 and other instances of, uh, you know, uh, payoffs to the uh, to the rich things have run fairly smoothly and quickly it's anybody's guess but the fact of the matter is the money is not flowing people are really worried tenants are very worried we need to organize a band together and flex our muscle on the grassroots it's really the way we need to move forward now and demand to cancel rent in the short run extend the moratorium alleviating that debt is the immediate need that people have and that is Frank Morales. He works with the Citywide Anti-Eviction Coalition. They're planning an action at the New York City and State Government Building at 250 Broadway in Manhattan. That's August 11th at 10 a.m. And Governor Andrew Cuomo will cooperate with the New York State Assembly's impeachment investigation after his counsel was given until Friday to submit documents and records by lawmakers overseeing the probe. That's next Friday. The governor's spokesperson said the assembly is 
is doing a full and thorough review of the complaints and has offered the governor and his team an opportunity to present facts and their perspective. He said the governor appreciates the opportunity and we will be cooperating. The impeachment investigation was launched earlier this year and drew in a range of controversies facing Cuomo, including questions surrounding the reporting of nursing home deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the circumstances surrounding a book deal about the crisis. But in recent days, lawmakers have signaled they want to expedite the impeachment investigation following the release of the report by Attorney General Letitia James determining the governor sexually harassed 11 women. Cuomo has denied any wrongdoing. Today, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio jumped on board the train strongly in favor of Cuomo's resignation. You know, there's that famous phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think he thinks he still may have some sleight of hand here. And he's obviously borrowing a page from the Trump playbook and trying to scorch the earth, attack the people doing the investigation, attack anyone who might prosecute him. It's not going to work. He's out of options. So this is just a matter of time before he's gone. If he was not such a narcissist and he actually could think about other human beings, he would say, hey, you know what? I'm doing a lot of damage at this point. It's time to go. Think about those 11 women and what he put them through just out of respect for how he wronged them and trying to atone for his sins. He should step aside right now. But I also think about almost 20 million New Yorkers who are suffering. Just get the hell out of the way. I mean, in the end, maybe he could close off his career with one act of dignity and decency and just step aside. But don't bet on that, Andrew. <laughs> and that was Mayor de Blasio earlier today. And there is still an election for mayor of New York City. The vote is in November, but in New York, it's true. The Democratic nominee, who's Eric Adams, is a sure bet to win. But don't tell that to Adams' GOP opponent, guardian angel Curtis Sliwa. Today, Sliwa blasted de Blasio's vaccine mandate for indoor venues, saying the requirement is an affront to liberty. Uh, We're here in response to Mayor de Blasio's mandate following France and Italy in demanding that people have got to be vaccinated in order to be able to actually exist in normalcy. But there needs to be room for those who are vaccinated to be able to say, well, I choose not to wear a mask. That's what we were sold on. We're on our way to 80 percent. That's herd immunity. And yet there'll always be those who choose not to get the vaccine or can't get the vaccine. But why should we penalize everybody for that? So today we stand in unity against these mandates, against these crackdowns. We are not France. We are not Italy. We are America, where we are free, where we have choice. And that's Curtis Sliwa. Meanwhile, Democrat Eric Adams said today, I think the mayor is going in the right direction. He said that at a press conference promoting the vaccine in far Rockaway, Queens, where just 38 percent of residents are inoculated. And that's on the news for Thursday, August 5th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.